At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the call-in edition of Slate Money, the long-awaited call-in edition. We've been teasing this one for a while now, but... This is finally your opportunity to get your questions answered. We have a whole bunch of really good questions, and we're going to try and run through as many of them as we can. We're going to save one just for the Slate Plus listeners at the end because you guys are special. You get an extra Q and an extra A. But, yes, I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as ever, by Jordan Weissman and Anna Shemansky. Hey there. Hey, Hello, everybody. Shaps. And let's go to the questions. Mr. Dan Schrader, producer of Slate Money, can you queue up for us question number one? Hi. Um, I'm wondering about the safety of my 401k and pensions. Um, we have a lot of money stored in there, and I'm just waiting for the world to explode any second, and I don't know if I should take it out now and spend it on something. Not all of it, but, like, you know, enough to, like, do some stuff around the house. Um, or if I should just hang on. I just feel like the stock market is out of control. It's just we're, gonna, we're in a bubble, and it's going to explode, and... I just don't know when to start selling. So it'd be really helpful to know what you think. Thank you. Bye. So I really love this question. I love a, a, a couple of 
great things about this question, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, the first bit is where you talk about how you have money in your 401k and your pension, which kind of implies it's retirement money. But then you're like, should I take money out to spend money around the house? And when should I start selling? The We can talk about the details, but the first thing is don't, if if this is retirement money, it's not designed to be spent around the house. It's not designed to be sold. You don't try and time the markets. You just keep it in there. And then eventually, come retirement, you'll have some money for your retirement. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the stock market is looking pretty bubbly. And if you have a lot of money in there, and if you're going to feel bad if you didn't sell when the stock market goes down, because the stock market will go down at some point, then um, Anna, maybe it, maybe you should be taking some money out and doing something useful with it instead of just watching it fall. Well, I, again, if you this is long term money, then you are going to expect to go through multiple market cycles, and also ideally, actually, when the market goes down, that creates buying opportunities, so that's not a bad thing, and. Again, I would argue that, of course, the markets are going to come down. The question is just how much they'll come down. If this were money that you didn't really need, then maybe you could argue you could take some of it out and potentially do something else with it that would have a higher return. I'm not sure exactly right not now. Not a higher return, though. No, we're talking about spending it around the house. Actually, like if you've made a, ma- a bunch of money in the stock market by putting it in the stock market and the stock market rising... Yeah, is, then, is there a case for taking some of those profits and buying a new kitchen? Yeah, I mean, I, I could argue, again, if it's not money you need, if this was just like money you were kind of playing with, then sure, why not? I mean, that's actually, you could probably say that's what a lot of investment firms are doing right now. Right. They're sitting on a lot of cash because they made returns and they're taking it out and holding it because there's nothing to invest in. So I just kind of want to jump in here. She's talking about taking money out of a 401k because she's worried about the market dropping. If you do that, you pay penalties and taxes, and you may end up losing as much just from that as you would from a market correction. It just, it just, I wouldn't do that. I would just keep that money there. You know, theoretically, if you were talking about just taking money out of an E-Trade account, that might be, that that was sort of, like you said, your kind of play money. That would be a different story. I think in general, I, you know, yeah, there are doomsday preppers out there, like hoarding gold and whatnot, because they think the world's going to explode. But if, if you're not going to go all, I don't know, plan for the future as if there's going to be a future. I think that's that's my general take on these things. Um, I would say there is a middle ground here that you sound to me like someone, like everyone has a different risk tolerance. And you sound to me like you're scared and your risk tolerance is quite low. And that's fine. It is normal and reasonable and absolutely fine to have a relatively low risk tolerance. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a 401k. You should have a 401k. But maybe it means that your 401k shouldn't be as heavily invested in the stock market as maybe yours is. So let's, I think Jordan is right, don't take money out of a 401k and spend it on your kitchen because that will incur penalties. These are called retirement accounts for a reason. You're meant to keep them through to retirement. But if you can't afford to lose, say, 30% of the money in there, if that's going to cause you a whole bunch of grief and you aren't willing to accept that, then by all means, start moving money out of stocks and into something a bit safer. You can move into like short-dated bond funds or something like that, which are not going to lose nearly as much of their value 
if and when the stock market crashes. And if you have a low tolerance for risk, if you can't afford the large drawdown, if you don't want to see your investments fall in value, then yeah, you can move out of the stock market and into something else. That's different from spending it in cash. Yeah, I, I guess I'd add one other thing, which is if you really do have immediate needs, like you part, you know, your stove is broken or something, like you really need to fix something in your house. Um, it's not crazy to take some money out of your paycheck and spend on that rather than saving it right now. Just because right now asset values, we talked about this on the show all the time, are really high. The stock market is bubbly. Uh, yields on bonds are are low. Uh, you know, it it, it make at, at moments like this. You don't typically expect money put in the market now to have a great return later on. I don't think your fear there is crazy. So if you're thinking about maybe, you know, making a slightly smaller 401k contribution this year because there's something you really need to do. That's not nuts. That that that's a reasonable decision, I think. But don't go raiding your 401k. That's all. <laughs> I do what Felix says, like, you know, change the allocation. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Mr. Dan Schrader, who's next? Hi, Felix and team. This is Peter from Westchester. My question for you all is about the national debt. On this week's show, uh, Jordan mentioned that he wasn't too worried about deficits. But uh, it seems to me deficits have been adding up over the years, and debt shows no sign of uh, going south. So it was a debt uh, continue to grow and uh, GDP growth being projected to be slow and government spending likely to grow. My question is, when do we start worrying about deficits and the debt? Uh, when public debt is 100% of GDP, 120%? It seems a bit like global warming to me and it, it's going to get serious and if we don't start to do something about it soon, it's going to be very hard to tame. Anyway, love the show. I'm a happy Slate Plus member. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to the November 4th episode. And yes, you're right that the debt-to-GDP ratios look like they're rising. Um, Anna, do you remember the debate about Reinhardt and Rogoff? Yes. I feel like this, <laughs> this is... This time is different? Th- I feel like this is, yep. this is the classic Reinhardt and Rogoff question. So um, yeah. for the purposes of Peter, who may not have heard of Reinhardt and Rogoff, um, who are they and what did they say about debt-to-GDP ratios? They're economists who... Um wrote a very well-regarded book uh, called This Time is Different and, and have written quite a bit about the significance of debt to GDP and the point at which it becomes a problem and becomes unsustainable. They are often talking about markets that aren't quite as developed. <laughs> well, th- there's a right. specific paper. So there yeah, was a very well, famous paper around the time, around like 2010, right after the recession, like got a lot of attention, which was it said that when a country 
crosses the 90%, I believe, debt-to-GDP ratio, the economy starts to suffer and slow down. And this was cited often as a rationale for austerity in the U.S. and Europe, around the world. Um, And a lot of there were two issues. One was the Excel error heard around the world. It turned out that they had screwed up some of their spreadsheets and that had sort of altered some of their findings, which was kind of a, a sad slapstick way for this paper to end up because they are two very good, well-regarded economists, regardless of what you thought of this paper. Um, and they've made a lot of interesting contributions. But the second thing was just whether or not they were confusing correlation with causation, um, no matter how many you know fancy regressions they ran and controls. To some extent, um, it seemed like a lot of these countries may have been piling up more debt because their economies were slowing, not vice versa. And so there's been this, I guess, you know, long running existential question that, you know, Peter asks, how much debt is too much debt? Do we know? And I I think there's definitely one school that says there's really no point where debt ever matters. You can go like full on, you know, you know, MMA theory, modern monetary theory. Um, Or there's another school which is very concerned about it. I think the answer is we just don't know. We know there are countries like Japan that, can have like a 250% debt to GDP ratio and their economy doesn't seem to be suffering from the, you know from that it doesn't seem to be suffering they can't even get enough inflation which is something that you would expect to associate with high debt levels you expect higher interest rates um you know i think so insofar as you know, when i said i'm not worried about deficits it's just like if there is a magic threshold um it's, it's not clear there is for any country that prints its own currency because you can always print your own currency. Uh, it just doesn't seem like we're, you know, it, I find it hard to believe we're close to it. Again, I think it's yeah. important to remember that it depends on the develop the stage of development of the economy, because that's going to then relate to the confidence that other countries and foreign investors have in that country's ability to pay their debt. Yes, I think so. That's so right on. And you see these like hyperinflation issues in these you know developing countries that I think a lot of it is institutions. If you have a functioning government, you people are going to think you're going to make good on what right. you owe. If you do not, if you're Venezuela right or now. Or Zimbabwe. I mean, or, that, that was why you had the exact same thing happen again, because people lost confidence in the monetary policy, in the government's ability to run its own economy. Exactly. So it's like a, it's a political economy yes. question. It's not just, is there some magic line? Exactly. And I also think it's important to remember that when you're thinking about debt, people often think about it in relation to like a person, <laughs> like the amount of debt that a person has. And that's a problem. And I think it's very important to remember that countries are very different than people. Again, people cannot, in fact, print their own currency. It, it is it is quite... <laughs> Oh, you can have an ICL. That's true. That's true. Maybe you can print your own currency <laughs> yeah, now. You can't, Anna. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but no, I, I do think this is just important to remember that there's nothing wrong with having deficits and there's nothing wrong with having a debt. I mean, traditionally, you want to have cyclical deficits. Having structural deficits may be a, a separate issue, but it's part of this cycle of the economy. It actually helps economies run more efficiently in a lot of ways. And I I mean, where would we be if we couldn't point to sovereign yield curve? Exactly. So I I just want to say one thing, which, uh, you know, Peter and some of the listeners, and I find it kind of remedial, but people always say, you know, we're going to become the next Greece, right? You know, oh my God, if we keep piling it up, we're going to become the next Greece. And what you always have to remember is just that 
the, these individual European countries do not print their own currency. They are on the euro. And that makes all the difference. It's why countries that are pegged to the dollar, for instance, often have t- issues with, you know, you know, fiscal, I mean, financial scares. Um, and in the case of Europe, why people really thought Greece might run out of money because it could not create more. Um, that is just not a situation you run into if you print your own currency. Dan Trader, let's have number three. Hi, Slate Money. This is Michael in Colorado. I know that the U.S. stock markets recently switched from T plus three trade settlements, where your trade is actually officially done three days after you make it, to T plus two settlement. My question is, why is it that in this day and age of everything being electronic, there's no more paper stock certificates, why do we have anything other than you know T plus zero or I guess maybe T plus one at the worst? Why, why do we need those couple extra days for trades to really settle? Is somebody making money off of that, or is it really that hard to make it all work out? Thanks. Okay, okay I'm going to take so this one. Excited. I'm really going to take so this one. So excited. I wanted to answer yeah. this, but I'm happy to I'm, give it to Anna. I'm sitting back for this question. Go. Okay, I think it's important to remember, okay, a few things. One, it used to be way back in the day, trades actually settled more quickly. It wasn't until the 60s, actually, that you really started to expand to like T plus five because you had so much paperwork. But now we've we've been shortening that span. But I think it's really important to remember that even in this day and age where you think everything is electronic and it's really easy to settle, it is not easy as you think it is, especially depending on the type of securities that you're trading. Also, I think it's important to remember that when you're trading, you're often trading on money you may not immediately have. By which I mean, like, say you're a private equity firm and you have a billion dollars of commitments. You don't have a billion dollars sitting in your bank account. You do capital calls. And how quickly your client's fund can range from two days to 10 days. So it can make it very complicated to manage your cash when you're trading. And if, if, say it's, if trades settle very quickly, that can make managing your cash quite a bit more complicated. Okay, so I find that answer not particularly satisfying to to Michael in Colorado because he's talking about the stock market. He's talking about liquid public equities, not weird private equity capital calls. And let me make my own stab at this one because there's this general feeling that, you know, I mean, Clearing and settlement is, has always been the most boring bit of the market, and you can more or less ignore it. And it's good if it's boring, and it's good if you can ignore it. More recently, there has become this idea that faster is better. And if you can settle these trades more quickly, that would be a good thing, and shouldn't we try and do everything faster? And I guess my question is, why is faster better? I... Don't see a problem. If you are trading in the stock market, I'm perfectly happy to assume that you're basically a rich person. You can wait a couple of days to get your money if you want to sell your stocks. I think you should be able to wait wait a couple of days, and you probably shouldn't have stocks if you can't wait a couple of days. And more to the point, things happen in the stock market. You get weird flash crashes. You get obscure like glitches in the way that things trade, and you want to be able to reverse those trades. You want to be able to have enough time if something completely crazy happens to step in, go back to the stock exchange, work out what went wrong, cancel out trades which were bad and just keep on going. So 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 I I personally am perfect perfectly happy with relatively slow settlement just because it gives people a bit of time to sort out the inevitable mistakes and also because no one needs money that quickly. Can can I ask? I want to actually just 
reiterate a part of his question, though, because it seems like Michael is concerned that this might be some sort of inefficiency, that there are some middlemen just scrape skimming money off the system because we haven't gotten better at it. Is that the case or is there some valuable service or is it just not adding much? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it used to be called playing the float. Um, where you were kind of making money off of this, but because of the way kind of fees and rates are right now, it, it's really negligible. It, it, you don't, you aren't making a ton of money by like holding assets that technically should have already settled. It, it's really not that big of a deal anymore. The reason it hasn't changed is, or it's only changed to T plus two is really more because of inertia. And, and also I, I agree with Felix. I think part of it is to keep a more like stable market because again, things do happen. Also, Trades don't always match. I mean, there are a lot of problems that I think people outside of the market don't understand that these things aren't quite as simple as it might appear on the outside. And and I'll just jump in and say that, yeah, the thing about T plus two is that you agree to a trade on Monday at a certain price, like $75 a share. And then the settlement happens on Wednesday at $75 a share. But the actual transfer of the money from the buyer to the seller happens on Wednesday. It's not like the buyer pays on Monday and then the seller gets on Wednesday and there's some intermediary sitting on the money for two days and making interest. The settlement happens on Wednesday. So I wouldn't worry too much about like some greedy intermediary making money in the middle. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Okay, let, let's do let's do something more um, fundamental and and like spiritual. Spiritual. This do, you have, do you have a spiritual quite, question for us? Quite a question. I want. Hi guys. Um, so my question is about financial reporting in general, I get this vibe sometimes when I'm listening to not just your podcast, but other financial news, or when I read a story about uh, Chipotle being downgraded because they pay their employees too much. Um, when I hear a story like that, or I see a story like that, I, I think of what kind of ghoul could write this without completely condemning the entire system. And the same thing when I listen to, on your podcast, you talk about Unemployment being low, but not talking about the types of jobs those are, are absolutely abysmal. I, I guess my question is, is, are these moral questions, something you guys talk about before the mic turns on, um, or is it completely eliminated from the discussion to begin with? Um, do you have to be a ghoul to be a financial reporter, or is that something they kind of feed into you once you get in there? Um, I'm not saying everyone there at Slate Money is a ghoul. I'm saying there's just a lot of humanity that's completely removed from financial reporting, uh, much like how after Trump was elected, the stock market shut up. So I guess my question is, how do we change it without nationalizing everything? 
um, thank you very much, and I hope you answer this question. And that's that's an awesome question. And the answer is no. You can't change it without nationalizing everything. So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, if you want to if you want to move to a world where you have a perfect alignment between sort of labor and capital and human happiness and profit, then yeah, you want common ownership of the means of production and I'm going to disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> says I mean, the, says, I'm not, says the guy that, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that slightly. world would be better than the world we live in, but I'm just saying that yeah, I I think that na- nationalizing everything is one solution to this problem. So I think this is interesting because I don't consider myself a financial reporter. You know, I'm on this show as we talk a lot about finance, but, you know, my day job is kind of a policy and econ writer. And I think most people other than Slate Money listeners think of me as sort of a lefty pundit at this point. (laughs) Like, I mean, that's that's how I get quoted. Um, And so I spent a lot of time ranting and raving about uh, inequities in the world and in fi- and in politics and policy and finance, whatnot. But I think, yeah, to some extent when you do, when you if you want to talk about these issues on a granular level, especially when you are writing for, you know, if you're writing for a Wall Street Journal audience, if you're writing for a business audience, um, you can't spend every other paragraph talking about how ordinary families are getting screwed. You can try and work that in a little bit, but I, I don't think you have to be a ghoul. You just have to know who you're writing for and who you're talking to. I like and also to think, what the story is. Yeah. Because it is absolutely possible and legitimate to look at every story in America through a kind of human interest lens of like, what does this mean for the worker? And that's not what we do on this show because i feel like there are other lenses which are also interesting not least the um sort of flip side of that coin which is what does this mean for the for capital for the investor like we had a question just earlier in this show about someone who was worried about her 401k going down in value which is you know you could what you could say i suppose was you should hope that your 401k goes down in value because that will be a sign that labor is finally having primacy over capital and that workers are being better traded, better treated and that companies are paying their workers better or something like that. But it's I don't think that's a very satisfying answer. No, I, I agree. And I I guess I will say I probably come at this from a slightly different angle just in the sense that if you think people are ghoulish and how financial reporters talk about these things, <laughs> you should see how it happens like really behind the scenes where sometimes it's it's more that it is true that you especially if you're in like emerging markets where you're often dealing with areas where there is potentially war and famine and you are in meetings where you have people entirely talking numbers. And yeah, I, I do think that there actually can be sometimes uh Certain people who who are troubled by that. <laughs> and, and I do think that there is also a problem, I think, sometimes in the market right now where you're very much encouraged not to think about the larger ramifications. That's just not what you're encouraged to think. That's not your job. Your job is to make money for your clients. And so I, I think it, when you're talking about financial reporting, I think if anything, in a lot of the financial news, they very often talk about the larger ramifications. In the industry, not so much. Yeah, I think also, you know... I almost want to throw this back at at, at at the questioner a little bit because 
if you are writing for the Wall Street Journal or Reuters and about the markets or companies and but well, no, he's talking about us. He's talking about well, no, slate he's money. talking about the whole. He's talking about the whole financial but, 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 press. But, but like, let's let's keep it to slate money for the time being. Well, uh, I guess what I just want to say is if you. If you try to turn everything into a, a commentary on class inequity, um, the guys who run companies aren't going to listen to you. They're not going to read what you have to say. Instead, they're just going to sit there and listen to CNBC. Um, and like, I think CNBC is actually kind of ghoulish because they don't. They aren't just like sort of uh, morally neutral on a lot of this stuff. They are just like they are like, yes, capital must fucking prevail. <laughs> like that is, you know, that is uh, not all. Obviously, like John Harwood is is not like that. But if you watch like their morning shows, for instance, it, it often feels that way. And so, I guess. You know, a little bit of remove and being able to just discuss what's actually going on in the world and even on our show when we kind of step back and focus on sort of the high, the 10,000 foot take on how all these pieces are moving is important for getting people to listen to you. But also, yeah, like Felix said, for actually understanding what's happening, because if you just focus, if you only focus on the human carnage, you might actually miss the kind of fundamental forces at play. And, and, and then the other thing which is absolutely worth adding is that you know, I mean, just speaking personally, I don't actually believe in common ownership of the means of production. And I oh, yeah. don't think that is necessarily the right solution to whatever ails this country. And I think that often the profit motive and the, you know, treating your people well motive are not in conflict with each other. And if you look at the most successful companies in America right now, if you look at Google and Facebook and Apple and Netflix or whatever, you don't hear a lot of stories about how, you know, they're based on slave labor. And well, the people contractors. Who, <laughs> well, so some of them have contractors, but the employees of those country companies are doing well. The people who are happily buying iPhones are getting value out of those iPhones. There's a lot of value being created by those companies, not just for shareholders, but also for the country and the world as a whole. And I think that's worth celebrating occasionally. I agree. And I, and I think that sometimes there's a tendency to act as though like business is kind of a necessary evil and capitalism is a necessary evil and we kind of deal with this, but wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to? And I guess I just pretty thoroughly disagree with that. I mean, I'm someone who's a big believer in having kind of a healthy dialogue between capital and labor, between business and government. And sometimes one is a little bit more in the forefront. One is sometimes is the other. But I, I think that if you look historically, standard of living globally has improved because of the profit motive. That is, I think, pretty universally a fact. Of course, I realize you could argue environmental devastation, that's a separate issue. But I, I do think it's important to sometimes remember that the simple story that I think we sometimes think about capitalism is not always the only story. And and the one story which we come back to over and over again on Slate Money, which is the biggest story, biggest financial and economic story in the world, is China. And the fact is that when China had common ownership of the means of production, there was mass immiseration of the population. And when China moved to a capitalist system, that did amazing things for the wealth and well-being of the Chinese population. And you have you have seen spikes in health and body weight and life expectancy and literacy and all of the things that we like, not just in China, around the world, but like China is a great example of how capitalism can create these things and so 
while it's possible to be ideological about these things, I think you also have to be empirical too. Slate money, capitalism is good. <laughs> I, I mean, I think some cap- <laughs> two-thirds of slate money says capitalism is great. One-third is like, you know, appropriate amount of capitalism. Is- but that's, that's an excellent segue, actually, to question number five. Hi there, Alexander Hoffman, a long-time listener, first-time caller. I have a question that I would like uh, each of the crew to answer about the others. Um, that is, what what are the differences in values or perspectives that um, the three of you uh, bring to your view of these topics? And how do you think that the others differ from you? Thank you very much. I'll take my answer off the air. You'll, you'll get your answer on the air. <laughs> um, so this is a great question, and um, I'll go first. Why I, not? I'm going to put one one rule, Felix. Yep. You cannot use the word millennial. I will not. I will <laughs> you, not use. I was not going to use the word. You can't. Word I'm, I'm just. I'm preempting it, though. No, okay? no. I, I was not going to use the word millennial. Um, so yeah, Jordan. Jordan is the. So I'm a technocrat at heart, I think. And I basically rely on Jordan to care about politics because I kind of hate politics. And and as we have seen increasingly over the past couple of years, politics, especially American politics, becomes increasingly important. And I just have no appetite for caring about like the minutiae of congressional whatevers. And so as the as what happens in Washington becomes increasingly important financially and economically for America and the world, I I find that Jordan's ability to care about that stuff um, rather useful. Um, <laughs> and the really great thing about Anna is that I um, is that m- she comes out of the trading world of the out of the buy side out of people who actually need to make money by buying and selling securities and things in the world and in that world uh you can't be ideological it if you walk into that world with a preconceived notion of what the world should be and you try and place bets accordingly you will lose all of your money very quickly um, you rapidly realize that the conventional wisdom is nearly always right and that you need to understand um, why the world is is as it is. And for all that we can, we all have our priors and we all like love to talk about how things are broken and they're easy to fix. The fact is that mostly things are as they are for a reason. And I find Anna very good at sort of being unideological about these things and just reminding us all of the sort of inconvenient facts of the market. But anyway, I'd love to hear from you both. Um, so I think that actually sums up, I think, a lot of the basic dynamic on this show. I would say, um, I think I've also sort of maybe changed the way I approached these issues since we started this one three and a half four years ago I think I used to sort of be like a just kind of wonky and academic about a lot of stuff that was like the joke was like I would always give some argue like some answer about the natural rate of unemployment uh, when something came up and Felix would be like no it's like a fucking like momentum trade or something that would be like and that was sort of fundamentally I'm 
not someone who cares about finance qua finance. I'm sort of someone who cares about politics and the economy and how you make it run and how you make, the, you know, how, how we can all kind of get along in this world. Um, and as a result, I, I care a lot about what goes on in Washington. I'm sort of provincial in that sense. I've always thought of Felix as someone who actually like enjoys both the art and folly of finance as sort of for, on an aesthetic level. Um, but at the same time, has a very high low view of the like likes like kind of 10,000 foot views of what's going on globally and actually likes thinking and kind of synthesizing all of that. Whereas I'm sort of in the middle, like kind of trying to figure out what the hell's going on in Congress. Um, and I think that dynamic, it's useful to have both of those. And I agree that Anna is actually the person who knows how the shit works. Um, and that's like, like actually like really, really important because, um, you know, I remember I one time had a conversation with, you know, I one time I had a conversation with Kathy about what it would take to get a really in-depth uh, discussion, uh, like understanding of a finance, like just a granular level. Is it possible as an outsider to really do it? And her answer as someone who had been sort of in and out was no, you really can't. Like it's almost impossible to have that, um, like just be even. She she had said that having been out of it for a while, she felt like she didn't know anything anymore. It was just like you know, it moves too quickly, and people are too willing to lie to you all the time. And so, actually, having someone who kind of is there in the trenches and smarter than most people who are in the trenches and actually thoughtful about it is, I think, of important dynamic. Well, appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I, I would say again, I I've really enjoyed this year of being on the show. And it's been very interesting. I mean, I, I feel like I, I've definitely appreciated. I feel like Jordan has a, a, a kind of depth of understanding about U.S. politics that I really appreciate. And, and also in a way that I think, although obviously comes, I think, from is, is a liberal, but I think is also not a kind of knee jerk and just believing the kind of consensus is really th also thoughtful. Yeah, I am getting closer to full communism. <laughs> <laughs> I am like, after the tax bill, I'm just like, I'm inching there. <laughs> but that's, anyway. No, and and I've also really enjoyed, again, because I, I do come from a background where I think there is like, there are, I mean, look, I'm someone who I like structure. I like spreadsheets. I like order. I like rules. And it's been kind of fun to sometimes have discussions with Felix where he'll often come at things from an angle that frankly just never would have occurred to me. And, and it's been really interesting to be like, oh, because because it, it is true when you're in a certain world, not that everybody thinks exactly the same. I mean, you, you call yourself a contrarian investor. But at the end of the day, like, again, there are certain just things you assume. And then when people question those, you're like, well, that's actually a very good question. And so I, I think that that's been a really interesting dynamic that we've had on the show. I, I will Why say, do those endowments always need to go up in value? <laughs> I, I will, I'm still going to hold that I'm right about that one. I, I will say politically, we obviously span a fairly narrow band of the left. Um, but like, honestly, I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem if you want, you know, if you want right wing people talking about finance, their entire TV networks there, devoted yeah. to that. So Yeah. And I also though would just a side note, but that like, a lot of people in finance are actually not quite as conservative as I think sometimes people on the outside think that they are. That's that's true. I've even met like Rentech people like who were, who literally make money for Robert Mercer, who are actually pretty liberal. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Keep on sending us those emails, slatemoney at slate.com. Listen to Lexicon Valley, which is hosted by... John McWhorter comes out every other Tuesday. It's a podcast about language and syntax and pet peeves and etymology and neurolinguistics and 
all manner of sexy stuff like that. So that's at slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Thank you.